Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So apparently a few guardrails remain. The lead starts right now. Breaking today, an embarrassing defeat for President Trump. His pick for director of national intelligence is pulled after Democrats accuse a potential nominee of being a yes man with a trumped up resume and Republicans privately signal to the White House they don't think he's up to the job. President Trump trying to score political points off the body count in American City as his campaign of division forges ahead. And a party with serious diversity issues gets hit with another setback as the House of Representatives' lone black Republican announces he's retiring. Why Congressman Will Hurd says he's out of here. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin with breaking news in the politics lead today. A major embarrassment and defeat for President Trump forced to give up his choice for the next director of national intelligence. On Sunday via Twitter, the president announced he would nominate Congressman John Ratcliffe for the job. On Tuesday, the leading Democratic moderate in the Senate, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, announced Ratcliffe would not get his vote. And privately, Senate sources tell me Republicans have been signaling to the White House all week that they have major concerns and Ratcliffe might not survive a vote out of the Senate Intelligence Committee. As CNN's Alex Marquardt now reports for us, the president is blaming the media for this failure and accepting none of the validity about Ratcliffe's the criticisms of Ratcliffe's background that Democrats and Republicans were openly questioning. Congressman John Ratcliffe no longer President Trump's pick to be the next director of national intelligence before even being officially nominated. Sources who spoke with President Trump telling CNN he privately voiced concerns in recent days about Radcliffe's ability to be confirmed, despite saying this in public just yesterday. I think he's just outstanding, highly respected by everybody that knows him. But as he spoke, pressure was growing on Capitol Hill. He strikes me as ex- uh, is extremely unqualified in every way. Senate Democrats, as well as some Republicans, expressing their own concerns about Ratcliffe's experience and possible dishonesty about his past. There needs to be a thorough investigation of his implied claims. Ratcliffe has touted his time as a U.S. attorney in East Texas as his main national security credential, a period that lasted only 14 months. In his congressional bio, Ratcliffe claims that during that time, he put terrorists in prison. But a CNN search of terror-related cases doesn't show any that Radcliffe himself prosecuted, and his office couldn't offer examples or evidence. In that same congressional bio, Ratcliffe also says he arrested 300 illegal aliens in a single day, even though it was actually a multi-state, multi-agency operation to sweep up suspected illegal workers. In the end, according to The Washington Post, just 45 workers were charged by Ratcliffe's office, six of whom were dismissed. Then there's his lack of intelligence experience, having never served at any of the agencies he was slated to lead, a big change from previous DNA who mostly all had significant intel expertise. Radcliffe has also only been on the House Intelligence Committee for six months. What would be your authority? And wasn't well known on Capitol Hill. Look, I haven't met 
Congressman Ratcliffe yet, and we're going to get together and discuss all of this. The president putting all this to rest this afternoon, tweeting, rather than going through months of slander and libel, I explained to John how miserable it would be for him and his family, adding, John has therefore decided to stay in Congress. And just moments ago, President Trump said that he now has a list of three people that he could name as director of national intelligence and may announce his choice as soon as Monday. Jake, he also said that when Dan Coats steps down later this month, that Coates's deputy, Sue Gordon, could be considered as the acting director. But sources have been telling us that in the White House, they have begun searching for other possible names. So that could mean the president may need to fill the very top two intelligence positions in the country with new people. That's right. Sue Gordon, a career professional, not a Trump loyalist. Alex Marquardt, thanks so much. Let's chat about this. Pam, um, what are you hearing from your sources about the president's decision to to pull Ratcliffe? It seems to me that there's no way he did this because the media was being unfair. The media only brought to light what (laughs) should have been brought up during the vetting process. And so in talking to sources in the wake of this decision, I'm just hearing a lot of concern from folks about where was the vetting? We've known for weeks that Coates would be replaced. The president had been talking about it. We reported it weeks ago. Um, and so you, they had plenty of time to vet and, and make sure that the Republican senators that they would need their votes for would, would be on board with this pick. And clearly that wasn't the case. And so in talking to sources, what appears happened is it became clear to the president that this could be an embarrassment for him, that he wouldn't get the votes he needed, more than anything having to do with his qualifications. Because what I was told was that the president brushed off his lack of national security experience because he basically wanted someone in that position who he melded with personality-wise, yeah. uh, who he viewed as a political loyalist. And he never really clicked that way with Dan Coats, as we know. So that's why he liked Ratcliffe. But it does. It, once again, you know, you have the president withdrawing a potential nomination, um, you know, and what appears to be a big vetting issue. I mean, he's one a line, a line of long. Yeah, look, this, this issue about the media, this is comical. You go back to the Kavanaugh nomination and the brutality of the media there, which makes this look like, look like a cakewalk. What's the difference? In that case, the, the candidate for the Supreme Court in that case is vetted. Republicans say, regardless of the difficulties, we're going to stand by him. The White House stuck through and they got the votes. In this case, clearly what happened is the president doesn't vet. People realize not only is he not qualified, but there's going to be a problem with questions about whether he's so partisan he can't serve in an intelligence position. And the president says, I didn't vet him. We got a problem. Let me pull him. It's not the media. It's vetting. If it were the media, Kavanaugh would have been pulled. And, and, and Jackie, I mean, one of the one of the key points about this, I think, is that uh, Mr. Ratcliffe, I mean, is a is a political partisan uh, and proud of it, very loyal to President Trump, oh, yeah. uh, a, f- a fan of theories, various various theories, conspiracy theories and such uh, about how the deep state was out to get President Trump. The job of DNI is supposed to remove some uh, politics from the intelligence process. Well, and that's exactly what the president didn't really like about Dan Coats. Dan Coats shielded the intelligence uh, community and, and, and people under his purview from politics and from the when he was talking about Russia, he would just stay on the same page. No, this is what we found. And when he was asked about it in front of Congress, he would keep on saying the same thing, regardless what the president was saying, which is his job. And clearly he was looking. He the president said as much. He, we, so we need someone who's going to go in there and clean up the intelligence agencies because they overstepped. He wanted a loyalist. 
which is it might not be maybe if there's a loyalist who has the, the credentials to do this, mm-hmm. it would be in the best interest of the country. But this person, not only did he not was he not vetted, there were things on his website that just were patently false. Right. Things he was claiming any uh, experience that he did have, it seemed to be embellished, um, I think, is, is the nicer word for it. And, and to Lou, um, the, the statute very specifically says that the director of national intelligence shall have, quote, extensive national security expertise. Now, my understanding is that Susan Collins, the senator from Maine who is on the Intelligence Committee, wrote that statute and was did not necessarily think that Mr. Ratcliffe had extensive national security expertise. Yeah, I highly doubt that the president has read that statute or even knew that that was part of the qualifications. This is a president that makes decisions based on what he sees on television. He saw Ratcliffe defending him on TV uh, against the the Mueller hearings, really going after Robert Mueller Mueller during during those hearings. He saw those clips of that exchange played over and over on cable news. And he saw someone who's defending him and he wants that type of person at the head of the DNI. And that's part of the reason this decision was made, not with regard to the statutes or not with regard to any vetting or not even with regard to his qualifications for this position. (coughs) This is a president that makes these types of impulsive decisions and then, you know, decides what to do based on the the backlash. And he saw that the backlash here was not only from the media, but also from Republican senators who were likely going to vote this person down. Uh, And that's why the president backtracked very quickly. And it's happened before. I mean, this has been part of the chaotic uh, administration. a Patrick Shanahan was up for defense secretary until domestic violence reports involving his family surfaced. He yanked Stephen Moore's name for the Federal Reserve Board after CNN's K-File and others found old sexist remarks Moore had made. He pulled Herman Cain also from the Fed Board after getting backlash from Congress and an indication uh, that people were not going to vote for him. I mean, mm-hmm. these are, you know, he's shooting Money himself in the foot. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, There's, as I was saying, there is a long list of these. And it is true that when the president decides he wants someone, it's very hard to persuade him otherwise. And so that certainly could have been part of the dynamic. He decided he liked Ratcliffe, then he saw him in the Mueller hearing, uh, and that kind of sealed the deal for him. But as I was talking to one source today, one of senior official in the administration raised the question of, where are the guardrails? I mean, where are the people surrounding the president saying, here are the red flags. This is why you may not want to do this, Mr. President. Here are some of the issues that could arise. Making sure that the Republican senators are on board. We were, I was told by sources that Republican senators have been reaching out this week to express their concern. And, and as this person said, right now, looking forward, they need to run the traps to figure out what they need to fix in this process and who had told the president that this would be a good idea and that he would be confirmable. And, and Phil, I want to get you in, but I also want to plug your book. You have a new book <laughs> that just came out this week, Black Sight, the CIA in the post 9-11 world. You used to be a top official at the CIA. Congratulations on Thank that. Thank you. Thanks. Where are the guardrails? Are you concerned about this? I am in a sense, because if you have a nominee who goes in there and, and this is the difficult point, who goes in there and says, I support what the president has said about Russia. What do you do with the intelligence community that said exactly the opposite? The president's going to have to nominate somebody who goes up on on a public hearing on Capitol Hill and essentially says something different than what the president has said in public. So I think the guardrails internally now at the FBI and the CIA are that they are career people in leadership positions that have made the president uncomfortable. The guardrail in this case has to be the president nominating somebody who says the president's wrong in a public hearing. I am waiting to see that. I don't know that there's any guardrails. The guardrails are in the agencies and on, and, and on, Capitol, and Hill, on Capitol Hill, but not at the White House any longer, yep. I don't think. Coming up, two very important reasons why President Trump should think twice about using murders in Baltimore to try to fire up his supporters. Then, the sixth Republican lawmaker to announce a retirement in less than 10 days, and it's putting the spotlight on a bigger issue than retirements for the Republican Party. Stay with us. With our national lead now, President Trump in a re-election rally in which he is, of course, running to, again, represent all Americans 
Last night seemed to make sport of Americans being killed in an area of the country that is run by his Democratic rivals. The homicide rate in Baltimore is significantly higher than El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala. I believe it's higher than Give me a give me a place that you think is pretty bad. Give me a place. The guy says Afghanistan. I believe it's higher than Afghanistan. President Trump there using the homicide rate of an American city to try to score political points, actually asking for audience participation. Name a city that's more dangerous. Again, these are dead Americans that he's talking about. You might recall that during the Obama era, specifically during the riots after Freddie Gray was killed in 2015, then-citizen Trump tweeted someone asking the question, quote, can we drop Donald Trump off in the middle of Baltimore so he can show Obama how it's done? To which Donald Trump wrote, I would fix it fast. But now that he's president, Mr. Trump seems to take no responsibility at all for the city that he too represents in Washington. And he doesn't seem to be doing anything to, quote, fix it fast. These homicide statistics are not fodder to be used for fun at rallies. They're tragedies. One of those 2018 statistics, this girl right now you're seeing on her screen, Taylor Hayes, age seven. She was sitting in the backseat of a car when she was shot and killed in southwest Baltimore. Four months later, her five-year-old sister Amy was shot walking to a corner store, according to CNN affiliate WJZ. Amy's baby doll, the one she got for her fifth birthday, you see it there in that photo lying next to a bullet marker in the middle of the street in Baltimore. Amy, thankfully, survived. If these statistics indicate a failure of the leaders of Baltimore and the leaders of Maryland, and they do, they're also a sign to Baltimore residents that their president is failing them as well. A man who said he would fix it fast just weeks before he announced he was going to run for president, but someone who today seems more inclined to look at the homicide numbers as something to exploit on the campaign trail almost gleefully turning to our politics lead as the president continues to exacerbate divisions in the country on the re-election tour. The only black Republican in the House of Representatives, former CIA officer and Congressman Will Hurd of Texas, announced that he's not seeking re-election, joining a growing list of his Republican colleagues, leaving their positions after this term. Five others announcing their retirement in just the last eight days, including one of only 13 Republican women in the House of Representatives. And as CNN's Phil Mattingly reports for us now, one senior House Republican is calling Hurd's decision a gut punch to the party. As Dan said, I'm Will Hurd, represent the 23rd Congressional District of Texas. Ask Republican officials about the future of the party in recent years, and one name would inevitably come up. Texas Congressman Will Hurd. I'll tell you, if the Republicans have any hope at all of picking up some seats in this 2020 election. They're going to need people like Will Hurd. In the state of Texas. 41 years old, former undercover CIA officer, winner of hard-fought races in a majority Latino Texas border district trending towards Democrats. The lone black House Republican who repeatedly made the case that his party, which has grown whiter, older, and more male, needed to expand its reach. My goal and what I'm trying to do is make sure that when folks look at me, they're not like, hey, you're the outlier. It's a position heard one of the few Republicans who would regularly vote and speak out against President Trump embraced. Well, I like to say I'm the, I'm the face of the future Republican Party. But one he'll no longer pursue from elected office. Heard announced Thursday night he would not seek re-election, following seven of his colleagues so far this year, including two of the conference's only 13 women members. 
A gut punch, one senior House GOP lawmaker told CNN of Heard's decision, yet one made at a time when Trump is the singular dominant force in the party. Fortunately, I've made the economy so strong that nothing's going to stop us. Boasting about a 90% party approval rating and a divisive, at times racist, political attack strategy that Heard made clear served only to set back efforts to broaden the party's reach. I think those tweets are racist and xenophobic. Uh, they're also inaccurate. I go into communities that most Republicans don't show up in order to take a conservative message. And when you have this being the debate, that activity becomes even harder. A GOP officials note retirements are part of every election cycle and point to a concerted recruiting effort, particularly among women candidates, as they look to retake the House in 2020. Asked last week if the current atmosphere would lead to more retirements, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, a close ally of Herd's, said this. I think the reason people retire, it's, it's their own personal decision and time and place of where they are. Now, Jake, from a near-term political perspective, Democrats see Will Hurd's seat as a clear pickup opportunity. Republicans saying they're going to fight tooth and nail to keep it in Republican hands. But from a longer-term perspective, it's interesting to note, Will Hurd is not leaving the Republican Party. He's very aligned with kind of the traditional GOP orthodoxy. But he is leaving politics for the moment. However, he said he's going to stay involved in his effort, as he said, to grow a Republican Party that looks more like America, Jake. All right, Phil Mattingly on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. Uh, my panel joins me now, and, and uh, Kirsten Powers and, and uh, David Urban join us. So let me start with you, David. This is not good news. Now, is it just, look, it's not fun to be in the House minority. And that, this always happens when there, and, it, and who knows what's going to happen into 2020. But I don't know. Losing Will Hurd seems like a, it seems pretty important. Hey, look, Will Hurd's a decent, decent fellow. Everybody, everybody likes him on the Hill. He's, he's well-liked on both sides of the aisle. I think it's also just a symptom, Jacob, you're talking about. You know, races are very expensive. He won by a few hundred votes last time. It's very tough. He may he may be, you know, looking looking down the road saying my district probably not going to go for for Donald Trump in 2020. And uh, I'm going to put all this effort in to be in the minority again. It's not so appealing. I mean, we just talked about it briefly, like Char Charlie Dent, you know, Frank Lobiondo, lots of folks who who were in the majority for a long time and were chairman, you know, Bill Schuster and others who said, I'm not going to be in the minority for a thousand years now. They decided to walk away, which is a shame. Yeah. And uh, a few weeks ago, uh, after the president went after the squad, those four uh, mm -hmm. Democratic women of color, um, Will Hurt was, I think, the most outspoken Republican official on it, calling the tweets um, racist and, and xenophobic. Uh, mm -hmm. And I wonder, I, well, I don't know, but I wonder if that was part of it, if he's sick of having to talk about this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we know that he isn't running because he thought he was going to have a tough race. It's a swing district. If a Republican can win it, he could win it. It seems more likely that he is tired of carrying water for Donald Trump. And I think the Republicans have to contend with the fact that, you know, you now have one African-American representing you, Tim Scott. Um, and, you know, what does that tell you about your party? And that he is now saying, well, Heard saying, well, I want to help change the Republican Party to make it look more like America. Well, how is he going to do that? I mean, that, that's my big question. Like, what, what do you do with this party that is becoming more and more white male? Yeah, because the gender issue is a big one, too. You, right. you were, Politico had a funny uh, statistic you mentioned earlier. Yeah, that there are fewer women, there are more men named Jim who are <laughs> white 
House yeah. Republicans than female members of Congress who are Republicans running for reelection. I mean, Susan Brooks from Indiana, this, this isn't a, she's not from a you know, flip district or anything, but she was the recruitment chair and she decided that she was going to leave. Uh, Martha Roby from Alabama, there is the, the exodus of women from the party is also extremely problematic. They know it's a problem and it just doesn't seem like anyone knows how to fix it, particularly when your recruitment chair is going out the door. And, I, you know, I think this is one of the disconnects between the elite Republican officials and donors who want a very diverse party uh, in terms of African-Americans and Hispanics and women and Republican voters who aren't in the same place necessarily. Yeah, you remember after 2012 when uh, President Obama was reelected, the Republicans came out with a growth and opportunity project. They talked about appealing to more minorities, immigration reform, trying to make sure they get more Hispanics and more African-Americans to hear their message. President Trump sort of ripped up that strategy when, and the fact that he won in 2016 has left the party sort of scrambling for a strategy. Do you stick with Trump's base first strategy, which brings voters out, which has huge margins in rural areas that had helped him win in Florida and other states where uh, Republicans have not won in quite a, a long time? Or do you try to appeal to minorities? And if the president did not have the record of you know, divisive comments, if you just look at his record on specific issues, whether it's criminal justice reform or you know, the First Step Act or opportunity zones, the Republicans have enough that they could use from the president's record to appeal to a broader community. But the fact that he's drowning all of that out with at times overtly racist commentary makes it much harder for people like Will Hurd to make his message to the communities that he's reaching out to. And he just basically had enough and decided to call it quits. And who else is, I mean, who is, who can say to President Trump, you know, you shouldn't be making light of the homicide rate in, in Baltimore. I know it's a democratic city and I know you were, you're in a spat with Elijah Cummings, but it's, that's, that's sick. Yeah. But I mean, this is what he does. Uh, this is he he doesn't he clearly doesn't really view cities that didn't vote for him as being part of his responsibility. You know, that he feels comfortable denigrating this city. Um, and, you know, you went through the, you know, the children that had been murdered. And, you know, he is the president. A, it's a he, mess. He obviously. is the president yeah. of the United States. And if he if, if you know, if he's recognizing that we have a major city that has major problems and Baltimore has major problems. I don't think anyone would deny that. Then how about come up with an idea for how to help them instead of attacking them and denigrating them? It's got to hurt the effort of people like you, David, to like <laughs> appeal to not just African-Americans, but people who see cities as part of America. Look, so, so I think it's completely fair for the president to point out policy differences, right? Sure. If you want to say, um, look here, let's pick out some cities, right? New York, um, Chicago, Cities that are run by Democrats, been run by Democrats for millions of years, basically, and say, look, you know, and, and pick out some cities that may be run by Republicans and say, here's some cities that are doing well. Here's some cities that aren't. And the ones that are being run by Democrats aren't so well. And maybe we should have some different ideas. I, I think that's what he's trying to do. Not so artfully, unfortunately. And it does make things more difficult. Look, I mean, as you know, Jake, Philadelphia suburbs bleed, you know, bleeds out to pretty far. Lots of voters. The Baltimore suburbs Bleed into you know southwestern, I mean, excuse me, southeastern Pennsylvania. So those, it, it does make it more difficult, right? It, it does put more people on the defensive, 
in places where we need, again, yeah. politics is about addition, one yeah. plus one. And this is, there's also this vindictive streak, too. Um, remember when he was talking about uh, dropping off um, undocumented people in sanctuary cities right. um, after ta- saying that you know, they were all criminals. So, ergo, um, he, was, he, in his mind, was dropping off criminals in sanctuary cities. Now, the uh, mayors and uh, were say, who of, of those places were saying, go ahead. Yeah. This, this, this is what we, we want people to feel safe here. So there's also that. It, it's not just that he's denigrating them. It's this vindictive streak as well. So everyone stick around. We've got more to talk about because it's not just Baltimore. Trump is also targeting an entire state d- days after the state passed a law that could cost him millions of votes, theoretically. Stay with us. We're back with our world lead now. President Trump this afternoon announced a new trade agreement with the European Union as he simultaneously is escalating a trade war with China and pulling out of a decades-old agreement with Russia, what the Russians were violating, according to both the Obama and Trump administrations. CNN's Pamela Brown has more now on the president's foreign policy moves. A wonderful day and a wonderful deal for a lot of people. Today, President Trump touted the art of his deal, this time enabling American ranchers to export beef to the European Union and other world markets. You've never seen anything like that happen before, have you? Not with your other presidents, you haven't. (laughs) But news of Trump's beef deal comes as America's negotiations with China and Russia reach a breaking point. Until such time as there is a deal, we will be taxing the hell out of China. That's all there is. Trump surprising global markets Thursday by tweeting he's adding a 10 percent tariff on $300 billion worth of Chinese goods, which includes toys, shoes, laptops and, yes, iPhones. China's Ministry of Commerce saying today China is, quote, not afraid of a fight. Adding countermeasures will be necessary. Russia is fighting mad, too, calling it a, quote, serious mistake for the U.S. to formally withdraw today from the INF Treaty, a landmark nuclear arms control pact made in 1987. Trust but verify. (laughs) The end of that trust was first announced in February. We can no longer be restricted by the treaty while Russia shamelessly violates it. It's just the latest international agreement the president has gone against. As promised, he abandoned the Paris Climate Accord. So we're getting out. And renegotiated NAFTA. NAFTA's been a catastrophe for our country. As for his nuclear deal with North Korea. We've had a great relationship. Uh, The Singapore was a tremendous success. Seems Trump's agreement with Kim Jong-un can withstand a lot. The president today tweeting, Kim Jong-un in North Korea tested three short-range missiles over the last number of days. These missiles tests are not a violation of our signed Singapore agreement, adding, Chairman Kim does not want to disappoint me with a violation of trust. And I spoke to a senior administration official who said right now the view in the administration when it comes to North Korea is that it's trying to send a subtle message to the United States, trying to get the attention of the president. But as of now, uh, the calculation is that as long as these are short range missiles and they're not the longer range that could hit Guam or hit the United States, the posture will be the same uh, from the president, kind of dismissing it as, hey, this isn't a violation of our agreement. First time I've ever heard short-range missiles described as a subtle message. But okay, Pamela Brown, thank you so much. (laughs) Coming up next, changing their tune. Some presidential candidates now fully embracing President Obama after criticizing his policies at this week's CNN debate. Stay with us. In our 2020 lead now, candidates trying to walk back some of the attacks made on President Obama at the debate. I don't think you're going to find somebody that's been more effusive in his praise Uh, about Barack Obama than I have been. President Obama was a great president. 
Heck, if he was running for president for a third term, I wouldn't be running. This as CNN has learned that former Obama administration officials were outraged over the attacks that Democrats made on that debate stage. Uh, Tulu, the, the Obama campaign is, or the camp rather, isn't one you necessarily want to make angry. But do you think this is going to be enough or even should they be uh, refraining from criticizing President Obama's policies? Well, I think this goes back to what, a lot of what we heard on Tuesday night, which was Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren going against the moderates. The moderates trying to rein in some of that leftward shift of the party. The party has shifted since Obama was in office. And there are a lot of liberal activists who think Obama did not do enough, who think that his uh, his record should be up for grabs, should be something that should be criticized. But you are now seeing some of these other candidates say, listen, we don't necessarily want to be the party that says that Obama was a moderate or, Ob or Obama was too far to the right, because there are a lot of moderate voters. And Obama re remains very popular within the Democratic Party and also popular among independents. And you need to be able to put together the Obama coalition once again, which Hillary Clinton was not able to do. And if you start offending people who like Obama by saying he did not yeah. go far enough, then you're going to struggle to win the general election. But on immigration, the idea that there was any kind, anyone was surprised that uh, that these candidates were going to go uh, go against Obama's immigration policy. Talk to anyone in that immigration advocate space during the Obama years. Oh, they were very critical. They were very critical. Yeah. They were very open the, about the it. Order in chief, they call them. Exactly. I mean, Luis, uh, Luis Gutierrez, member of Congress um, from Illinois, he was very critical of the Obama administration. So that I don't and a lot of them don't want to go back to that. <laughs> and, and take a listen, uh, uh, David, uh, to President Trump. Uh, he noticed uh, the number of attacks on <laughs> Obama. He talked about it last night. The Democrats spent more time attacking Barack Obama than they did attacking me, practically. Yeah, he's, to, to lose point, right? So the president's trying to say, look, the party is so far to the left that Barack Obama is not even mainstream now in the Democratic Party. <laughs> that, that Barack Obama's health care plan, which was pretty radical at the time, isn't even close to where they want to be. You know, we, I, you know Axel, I was David Axelrod, was, we, we, we were sitting around talking. He said, you know, we tried the public option. We couldn't get there. Like, right. we, we tried. We tried really hard. And, and we couldn't get near to where these people want to go. And now they're on the stage basically like... You know, throwing tomatoes at the guy. I mean, it's incredible. But it's because by Joe Biden is the front runner, and they're right. trying to find some way to you know to, to land a punch on him. And his Senate record is pretty old. You know, so they are going back after that. But I think that you know they're they're trying to find something to attack him for. I think it's I don't think it's out of bounds. I just think it's not productive. But the party has and, moved to the left. I mean, yeah, the party has moved to the left. And but but I think it's always important to remember those are the loudest voices. There are still a lot of moderate uh, Democratic voters, in particular, voters, Afri sure, yeah, yeah. African American voters are actually pretty moderate, right? So they're more I think, moderate than Democratic white yeah, voters. Yeah, and definitely. so I think that um, so they are speaking to the, to the loudest voices in in the room, and and look, there are fair criticisms to yeah, make but, about but Barack happened, Obama's record, but I think you know Joe Biden could probably do a better job defending it. I think to say, <laughs> look, we could have done a better job, but let's let's you guys are living in like magic land where Barack Obama was the king and he was just decreeing right. things. Like there was a Republican. Congress. There were other things going on. You know, we, let's build on the things he did. If he if he could have done, you know, something more than what he did in terms of Obamacare, he would have. He couldn't because of the Republicans. And there are laws saying that if you're in this country illegally, you get deported. Yeah. yeah well, well, not if half the not if half the Democratic, you know, uh, electorate up there on the stage gets their way. Right. That's talking about decriminalization of the border. And when you come through, here's here's some health care. Here's an education. I mean, that's the problem. You stake out the positions, these really radical positions, and they become very hard to defend the closer you get to a general election.
President Trump goes off on California days after passing a law that gets way too personal for his liking and might cost him millions of popular votes. Stay with us. They are doing to our beautiful California is a disgrace to our country. It's a shame. President Trump slamming California last night just days after the state passed a law that could force the president to do what he's long been avoiding, releasing his tax returns. As CNN's Kyung Law reports for us now, if he doesn't, it could cause him to lose millions of votes in 2020. Mr. Secretary, call the roll. Gauntlet thrown in the latest battle for President Trump's taxes. California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill that requires presidential and gubernatorial candidates to release their tax returns in order to qualify for the state's 2020 primary ballot. You have a right as an American citizen to know what's going on. You have a right to know if someone's self-dealing. This latest move pits Newsom in another and more personal fight with Trump as California dives into the Trump tax battle. The federal government is not going to be able to force his hand. California will. State Senator Mike McGuire introduced the bill. He says it's all about presidential transparency. If you are a Democrat or if you're a Republican, you can choose not to release your tax returns. You simply won't be on the California ballot. But there's only one person who has vehemently resisted releasing his taxes. I think we all know that audit is hogwash. He simply wants to avoid releasing his tax returns. For years, Trump has refused to budge. I would love to give them, but I'm not going to do it while I'm under audit. It's very simple. To force Trump's hand, states are jumping in. This year, 18 states introduced similar bills. California's law is expected to immediately face legal challenges. But Democrats say they're not worried. This bill applies to all candidates. It doesn't discriminate. And that's why I believe that this bill will be ruled constitutional. The state GOP disagrees, noting California's previous governor, Democrat Jerry Brown, vetoed a similar measure, questioning the constitutionality and concerned about a slippery slope precedent. In your opinion, what is this truly about? Politics. I think it's clearly a vendetta with President Trump. That may not matter for Democrats politically. A CNN poll earlier this year found 66 percent of Americans believe the president should release his tax returns. Just 32 percent said he should not. Republican Senator Brian Jones says if Trump's name isn't on the state ballot, all his party could do is use it as a tool to energize the GOP base. People are like, OK, I don't like Trump, but I don't like this idea either of the state of the majority party overreaching. So I'm going to go vote just to show my distaste of this process. Now, Trump's per- Trump's personal attorney, Jay Sekulow, released a statement after California's actions, saying that California's attempt to circumvent the Constitution will be met and answered in court. Now, California Democrats say they'll meet them in court and hope, Jake, to have some sort of expedited process to have an answer before California's primary on t- Super Tuesday. Jake? Kyung La, thank you so much. Also in our national lead, we are waiting for a toxicology report to determine the official cause of death for Saoirse Kennedy Hill, the granddaughter of Robert F. Kennedy. She was just 22 years old and was found unresponsive at the family compound in Hyannisport, Massachusetts. CNN's Jean Casares is in Hyannis right now. And, and Jean, uh, Saoirse wrote about suffering bouts of depression uh, in high school. Do we know if that is related at all to her tragic death? 
Well, late today, we did get a statement from the Cape and Islands District Attorney's Office where they do say that the cause and the manner of death are pending toxicology report. So they are hopeful, it is believed, but they are also saying that this, the jurisdiction of this case is now with the chief medical examiner. An autopsy has been performed that no trauma was found on her body except that trauma that is consistent with life-saving measures. Her family is devastated from this. They are saying their hearts are shattered. Quote, she lit up our lives with her love, her peals of laughter, and her generous spirit. And her grandmother, Ethel Kennedy, said that the world and the country is a little less brighter today because of her death, Jake. Gene Casares, thank you so much. And our thoughts and prayers are going to the members of the family, especially Stephanie and Paul. Uh, remember, if you or a loved one needs help or needs to talk to someone, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. There is love for you. There is help for you. In just minutes, Puerto Rico's governor is expected to step down, but state lawmakers just made a move that could change things. We're going to go live to Puerto Rico next. Stay with us. Breaking news now. We're just minutes away from Puerto Rico's embattled Governor Ricardo Rosseo stepping down after weeks of protests. The problem is right now nobody seems to have any idea who will replace him or when. CNN's Leila Santiago was live for us in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Leila, what's going to happen in just a few moments when Roseo is expected to officially be out of office? That is the key question, Jake. Here in front of La Fortaleza, the governor's mansion, there is a lot of celebration in hopes that he will step down. This is a crowd that is saying, pack your bags, Roseo, that is celebrating and counting down the two minutes and 20 seconds that still remain until he said he will step down. But let's talk about the possibilities here because there's a lot of uncertainty as to whether or not that will actually happen. So here are the options. One, they could go to a gentleman named Pedro Pierluisi. He was the, poise, the person who the governor appointed and was sworn in, but he has not been confirmed by the Senate, and the Senate says they won't consider until at least next week. Then there's the next in line. That would be the Secretary of Justice, Wanda Vasquez. She says she doesn't want the position, but she will fulfill her duties if that's the case. You can see the crowd really getting uh, pumped up and excited as we get to 5 o'clock. The other option, and I don't think it should be discounted, the option that the governor does not actually step down, even though that's what he said he would do, that he will step down at 5 o'clock today. And as that moment gets closer, this is a crowd that is expecting that, hoping that, wanting that, but waiting to see what will actually happen. Quite a mystery. Leila Santiago in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. You should, tune, uh, you should turn into uh, Sunday onto State of the Union. My guests will be Democratic presidential candidates Senator Cory Booker and South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Plus, we'll have the director of President Trump's Economic Council, Larry Kudlow. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern on Sunday. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. Tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. See you Sunday. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.